This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Let me go over to Lock Street, though. I've got to talk about what's happening here. Now, you all know, we know the history a few weeks ago about the Saturday night and, and the, the group that decided to descend upon Lock Street and the, 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 the garbage that they were throwing, the rocks, the, the damage they incurred. And it, uh, it was terrible, really. And the community responded and uh, supported Lock Street. And, of course, we were down there the following week broadcasting with uh, the Love Unlock uh, mission that everybody seemed to partake in. It seemed like it anyway that day. And that's great. It's a great news story. You know, terrible thing that happened, but the way the community responded. Well, now we hear that this weekend, uh, Lock Street could once again be the target of uh, demonstrations. Uh, There is a group called Hamilton Against Fascism that is planning a rally. They're going to, I guess, assemble at Victoria Park and then march down Lock. Um, And uh, I'll get into some of the rhetoric about that in a couple of seconds. But there's another group that is opposed to them called the the Lock Street Anti-Fascism Counter-Rally, which is also scheduled for the very same place at the very same time. Now, yeah, just do the math here. What do you think might happen when you've got two groups that are opposed to each other marching? Uh, and they, they are going to have covered faces, we're told. Some of them will, too. It's, uh, it's a problematic situation. I want to bring Tony Greco into the conversation from the Lock Street BIA. And uh, always a welcome guest on the program. How are you doing this morning, Tony? Good morning, Bill. How are you? I'm, uh, I'm getting a little concerned about what's going on on Lock Street. I'm sure you are, too. Yes, we are. We are. We are. What do you, what do you think of What do you make of what this latest thing is happening here this weekend? I don't know what to think of it. I don't know why uh, we are the chosen one. The street is the chosen one uh, to for these uh, demonstrations. I know it happens in another part of the city, but I can't really see it in the, in the same month. I mean, this is a, you know kind of a, really unexpected. Well, and that's the first thing that, that struck me when I saw this story. It was actually brought to our attention by one of our global news folks. Uh, who was checking out some of the social media sites. And this was actually based on a posting on Facebook uh, the other day. And I've read the post, and it, it's rather incendiary. They talk about anti-fascism and uh, anti-immigration and all sorts of other things. And, and, it's, and I thought, okay, it's on Facebook. It may or may not be legitimate, but apparently it is, and apparently there is going to be a rally and yeah. this counter-rally. But I'm, that, that was the first question I had, Tony. Why are they picking Lock Street all the time? Well, this is it. This is what I can't figure out. I mean, if they want to have uh, their uh, war, uh, their voice heard, I mean, social medias and all the medias at all, I mean, they can really do it for that. They don't have to do it like the old-fashioned way, go on the streets and try to promote uh, all the things that uh, you know, a lot of people don't believe in what they're trying to do. And also what would cause is the damages. It would, it would kind of disrupt uh, uh, businesses, and people don't like that. You know, it's not something that you, you take it you know, lightly, you know. And it's uh, we're told that it's going to be on a Sunday, but some of the businesses are going to be open, some not. But that's not the point. The fact is, is that, you know, you've got the potential for a conflict here. And, uh, and for a street that's just kind of trying to get back up on its feet after what happened a couple of weeks ago, uh, yeah. this is, this is the, not the kind of news you want to hear. No, 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 it's not. It, uh, it, like I say, it, uh, to us, it's something that, uh, you know, I, I was hoping that nothing like happened a couple of weeks ago happened again or something similar. But, uh, you know, just, just, it just boggles our mind, and I just received a lot of a lot of calls yesterday from uh, my merchants, and uh, they just concerned about and uh, what are we going to do? And I says, well, I think the first thing 
what I said is that the city should pretty well notify. I mean, we did our own part of notify all the store owners and the merchants and business on the street. And and hopefully, uh, I know the police are keeping an eye on things, and they don't they don't know what they're going to do. They probably know, but they won't say. But uh, we all hope that the situation gets worse, and, uh, and there's and there's need for some form of action that uh, the police will take it and won't let uh, ride, uh, you know, to the point where, you know, things get becoming a usual thing on the street that anybody can come and do what they want type of thing, you know? Tony, have you talked to police about this yet? No, yet, no, because I, I didn't know what the situation, like I said, I just received the email yesterday and I just tried to forward it to some of the merchants and uh, so I don't know, I haven't communicated with them yet and they haven't communicated with me either, but... Uh, one of the merchants uh, sent an email to the, our counselor to see what the city can do about in terms of... Uh, you yet, know, have you heard from Counselor Johnson about this? No, no. no. So no response as of yet. Uh, I, I must say, by the way, reached uh, out to Hamilton Police Services today, too, and they were not available to make a comment on this. And yeah. that that's unfortunate because you kind of like to know where they're coming from yeah. on this. And, yeah. I, and, yeah. and look, at I'm, you know, let's face it. I mean, I understand we had Chief Gert on the program after the last incident on that Saturday night. And he explained yeah. what the protocol was, but you know as well as I do, there are still a lot of people in the community and some people on Lock Street that still have some questions about the police response and maybe they, they could have done things differently. They do, they do. And in and, and my own way, I try to justify, like I mentioned to you on your program a few days ago, that blood was not you know, on the street and that was good. But at the same time, I think now if things are escalating to a, a situation where you know, we'll do more damage and uh, there will be fights and all that. So I think police should be prepared for that. That's my feeling. You should prepare ahead of time so that these people don't have a chance of escalating the situation. Well, I mean, when you've got two groups that are so diametrically opposed to each other, I know that there, there was yeah. a, a situation like this, I guess, about a year ago. The Spectator yeah. reported on that this morning. Yes. And and uh, there was no physical violence, but I mean, people were yelling and screaming at each other, and uh, you know, yes. trying to steal each other's placards and signs. Yes. And yes. Uh, you know, I mean, one thing can lead to another. We've already seen what can happen in a situation like that. And yes. Yes. Uh, so I, I can understand your concern at this stage, and I can understand why a lot of the merchants are saying, "Wait a second, are you just going to let this happen and react, or are you going to do something about it?" And especially, like I said, it, it, it's something that you know we don't take it lightly. We don't want things to start to do with becoming the the capital of, of, of the protesters, you know, like this is something that we don't want. And you know our history of the street and, uh, you know, our hard working that we did over the years. And uh, so this is something that we don't take lightly. So I hope things will go for the best. And I hope, like I said, I'm sure the chief and, uh, and his people would, uh, you know, take care of that open the prevention aspect first and prepare, be prepared for, you know, well, and that would be gratifying. It would be, I think, it would be reassuring if the police could say that. I know they said that they're going to monitor the situation, yeah. but uh, as I say, I'll go back to that situation when they monitored that, and then you know, obviously, it's one thing to say we're monitoring things, but after the damage is done, it's it's a little late, and you want to make sure that they're going to be a little more proactive as opposed to reactive. I would think. Yeah, and this was a first, I guess, but this time around now, they should be more active in sense that. You know, anybody would do something wrong according to the law, they should just act right away. You know, they shouldn't let them go further. Are, are the merchants going to do anything in preparation for this, or are they just going to wait and see what happens? I, 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 this, this is all news to me. Like last night around 5 o'clock, I received an email, and I responded, and I kind of emailed a few more people. 
uh, today I will I will try to coordinate a little bit more on on this aspect, and uh, I'm sure probably a few more people will call, and I'll see what 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 comes out of it. But I'm sure we're all going to be preparing our aspect and watch and see type of thing, you know. Like I say, and and, and I think all this publicity too, and uh, in the business aspect, I you know I'm talking about business because we are a small business, and that uh, people won't be, won't even come to the street, and the ones that do come, they want cause some form of problem. So I mean, it's kind of a really strange situation right now that we are in. Well, you know, as we talked to a number of the business owners, and you yourself and, and so many others, uh, when we were there for the, uh, you know, the, the Lock Street, uh, I guess appreciation, really, you know, the uh, Love Lock Street thing, and we broadcast, of course, from Donut Monster, and we talked to other residents. You were down on the show, and a number of others were. Uh, there, there's a there's a, a, a kinship there among all the, the merchants there, all the store owners there, uh, because, I mean, you know, this is this is your blood, sweat, and tears that have created those businesses, and you've made Lock Street unique, and, yeah. uh, and it's part of the charm of that area. And uh, for people to come in here and all of a sudden decide that this is going to be their battleground for whatever that is that they seem to have or whatever their their fight is, uh, is, is somewhat problematic. I mean, because it's it's one thing to say that they may have contrary opinions to something, but uh, why are they using Lock Street as a battleground for this? Yeah. Why taking? Uh, it's like going on somebody's property, and in our case, this is our family. We all together, and as all the business, we are we are a big family. And once they start disrupting the family, there, uh, I mean, this is like private ground for us, you know. I mean, city property, of course, the street, the city property. And that's why another thing to the enforcement. I know we can't really go further on not enforcing the street because everybody, the streets belong to everybody, belong to the city. But at the same time, I mean, I don't think uh, this should be acceptable, uh, like as much as possible that the causes problem you know like you can walk the street you can you know talk you can do everything you want and like i said the media now it's a social media they want to do facebook they want to do whatever they want to do and that's fine i mean the message gets across faster that way than having you know a few people just marching and causing problem and uh, intimidation too i guess the neighborhood that's another concern like again that's an attachment to our business family i mean they're really supportive of us and that's to them it's another slap in the face having these people walking and intimidating the, you know i mean if they happen to walk on the street with their kids and family i mean that's that's something that's uh, it's no really accept you know well, there's a safety issue, and that's that's evident. Obviously, we know right. about that, and and there's the the concern about damage to property once again, and we've already seen that happen. But yeah. the, but you know, there's another element to this, Tony. That you know, now that this is out there, yeah. uh, the concern here is that I mean, you guys are <laughs> you're merchants. I mean, if if people are listening to this who saw this and say, wait a second, I don't think I want to go down there. It doesn't seem like it's very safe. That's yeah. that's bad for business. I mean that that may be a little lower on the priority list, you know, below public safety and, and property damage, but it's still a factor. If you if all of a sudden this fabulous area called Lock Street is is deemed to be not a great place to be because you don't know who's going to be there and what they might do, that's that's not going to help the businesses down there. And that's my fear, and some of the merchants fear that uh, we did so much and we. We became one of the little jewels of, uh, of Hamilton and a uh, special neighborhood. And, and this could damage, like if this happened another time or this time and a few more times, I mean, this is uh, all the building and all the positive things that we did, it could backfire and go down. And the starting from business moving out and neighborhood, and, you know, people come from all the way from Toronto moving out again because they never thought the neighborhood would be safe as far as it was. 
So there's there's a lot of things to think about too. It's not just uh, one protest and two protests, and it's just more of a continuation thing that I'm fearing, you know. Yeah, and I, I I'm I don't know what we're looking for from Hamilton Police Services at this stage. I don't think anybody's calling for the you know for the you know the the SWAT team to be down there or you know oh, be lined. I, we're not looking for that at all. And not looking for water cannons or any of that stuff. Oh, okay. But you just want to know that the streets are going to be protected and the people on that street are going to be protected. And and we're we're in a bit of a, a quandary here because we don't even know how many people are going to show up for this thing. That's right. But I mean, if you wanted to have a parade down King Street or Main Street, Tony, you'd have to go to the city and get a permit. If these people are going to march down the street and impede traffic or, or start to, to hassle people on, you know, pedestrians on sidewalks, yeah. well, you got a problem going on. And I'm sure that they won't ever tie I mean, they're going to be just like they did with, uh, you know, the vandal part of it. The police never expect, expected to be so many, and they appeared all at once on a certain part of the street, Aberdeen and Lock type of thing. So. So this is a it's an unknown thing, like you say. So, but even say that, I I think there, there should be some form of a, a, an advance prediction on, on on the police part of it too. You know that they say, well, we don't know, but let's let's face the, you know let's go for the worst scenario. You know. Well, yeah, uh, hope for the best and prepare for the worst. I guess is is maybe the way. And and again, we're not, we're not trying to you know get everything ramped up here. That that may happen on its own. But I mean, you know. <laughs> There's a precedent set here. This is what this is all about. This is not just, right. hey, there's going to be a rally here. I wonder yeah. how it's going to go. We saw how badly it can go a few weeks ago. Yeah. We don't want a repeat of that. That's what this is all about. We don't want anything to really up in, in terms of injuries and all that. But at the same time, I think if the police presence is there ahead of time. And and uh, even having uh, officers on, on the horses like they did uh, a lot Love lock day type of thing. I think it was a friendly way, but at the same time having the presence there, you know, uh, that that will probably help too. You know, are you going to be there Sunday? I will try. I, I know there's some lot of commitment, but I will try to be there. Yeah, I guess there's a lot of store owners now that even if their shops weren't scheduled to be open on Sunday, may want to be down there just in case. Yes, just in case. That's right. That's right. Well, Tony, we'll stay on top of the story. You can bet on that. And as soon as we get some clarification from the city and uh, and from others, including police services, how they uh, plan to handle this thing, we'll certainly uh, talk to you again about this. Thanks so much for this this morning. Thanks, Bill, and have a good day. Thank you. You can. Tony Greco, of course, Mr. Lockstreet, as he's known uh, around there, one of the original members, of course, of the BIA, been down there for so many years. And you know what? Our hearts and our concerns go out to the people on Lockstreet and to the residents and to the business owners. Uh, when they hear something like this, it's like, oh, no, here we go again. And I hope it's not that way. I hope everything is fine. And if these two groups are going to protest and march at the same place and down the same street at <laughs> with contrary points of view, maybe everything will be fine. We hope so. But you got to wonder, why Lock Street and why doing this? And oh, there's a lot of people that are pretty nervous, I think, on that street right now because of what they've seen and what might happen as a result. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, if you just came in halfway through the conversation, we did reach out to Hamilton Police Services uh, to uh, ask them to join us to talk about what their plans were for this, and uh, they were not available as of this time. Hopefully we'll hook up with them later on and get some clarity on that, and from the city at the same time. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Well, I guess the good news is uh, the U.S. has confirmed that uh, there is a possible breakthrough in the NAFTA negotiations uh, in the automotive issues. Uh, that's obviously been one of the contentious issues, and uh, even uh, the American uh, uh, head negotiator, Robert Lighthizer, uh, suggested that there's some real progress being made. But there is always a but. 
Uh, he cautioned us that there are many more challenges ahead. And uh, so we're not out of the woods as of yet. Marvin Weider is with us, business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Thanks for coming in today. Good to see you. Glad to be here, Bill. Uh, were you surprised, first of all, that, uh, that Lighthizer said that the automotive thing seems to be, and they're not there yet, but they seem to be a lot closer. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, frankly, I am. Um, uh, we're coming towards the eighth round of negotiations, going to start here in about a week and a half. This is supposed to be a 10-day and final round out of it. We hope to get an, an AFTA deal. And we are still far apart on many fronts. And so the question was, who has to blink? Is it Canada that's going to have to blink and concede? Is the United States? And, of course, you and I have talked about this, the United States. And Mr. Trump doesn't seem like a conceding kind of guy. So where are we going to have something? Or would we get 75% of the deal and then sign that and put the rest off? Who knows? And we still don't really know. But in the last couple of days, there's been this breakthrough that the United States, whose flagship argument around NAFTA seemed to be, Uh, How are we going to get more control of the auto industry? Keep those foreign cars out of here by jacking it up. Canada put a proposal on the table that said you're measuring this incorrectly, that you're only looking at the marginal cost of making a vehicle, and you're forgetting all the R&D dollars, all the dollars spent on the software that now runs these cars. Let's, let's calculate that, and if you do that, you'll be happier. And it seems like America suddenly realized, yeah, we had forgotten that, because they now seem mm-hmm. to be willing to negotiate something new. But as you just pointed out, that doesn't mean we're out of the woods. We still want to talk, or they still like to talk about our dairy industry and supply management. We still don't have a good dispute resolution mechanism. We haven't seen a breakthrough on the duration of the agreement. Remember, the Americans wanted to be five years yeah. and then maybe renewed after five years. But there, but there are some other little things, and I suspect we're going to give them something back. Here's the one I'm going to put out on, tell you I think Canada is going to blink on. Right now, if uh, an American orders product from Canada uh, and through the mail, $800 worth of product can enter the United States before any duties are applied. If a Canadian orders something from the United States, $20, 20 can come yeah. in, and then after that you pay tariffs. Uh, I'm sure many of your listeners have bought something on eBay or Amazon, thought it was a great deal, grimaced at the shipping cost, and then suddenly got slapped with another 15, 20 bucks in duty when it comes up at the Canada Post Office. I think that's where we're going to blink. The Americans have said, in this day and age, $20 isn't right. We don't have to go to their number 800, but if you moved halfway to $400, that'd be something. So I think we're going to move on a couple of them, but those two big sticking points in my mind remain the dairy industry supply management and the resolution. And, and as I mentioned in my commentary earlier this morning, I mean, you can put all of these on one umbrella. That and Lighthizer talked about this yesterday. It's it's protectionist policies, and and I guess I get that, okay. But the excuse that the Canadians have used for years now, not just under these negotiations, is we're protecting Canadian sovereignty. And that's that's wearing a little thin, you know. And when when you look at, for instance, telecommunications mm-hmm. and and Verizon is just itching to get into mm-hmm. this market. Uh, don't tell me that this Canadian sovereignty—it's protecting the big three guys here in this country. That's all it is. Yes, or you know, there's some other examples. For instance, um, there's a, an American. Uh, online channel or channel on the TV called QVC, where you can order things. It's not it's, unlike it's the like our shopping channel, Home Shopping Network. Exactly, it's just like our Home Shopping Network. But they would love to beam into Canada, and we say, "Oh no, no, you see, uh, you see, uh, we 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 require it be bilingual, and oh, yours is not bilingual." 
I, I don't think that's going to hold up. So I think, I think Canada is going to give out a couple. But again, the trick was you didn't want to get caving in too quickly. Now that America has given us one on auto, I think we need to reciprocate to keep that momentum going. So I'm, I'm actually even more buoyed about this next round. I think we're going to get a deal, uh, whether it's a 100% deal or a 95% deal. But I think we're going to get something. Uh, I'm feeling much more confident. By the way, I, I know I'm old enough to remember this. Uh, that QVC used to be in Canada. It was on cable up here. At one time, yes. Until a Canadian version of it came out, and they said, okay, that one's, you can't put that on anymore. Same thing with the Weather Net. The, the Weather Channel down in the States was on TVs all over the place here until we got a Canadian version. Uh, is that sovereignty, really? I mean, come on. Think about this. Uh, all, what they're looking for, and I guess what Lighthizer's hanging his hat on, is kind of a philosophical argument that, hey, the F in, in NAFTA is free, free trade, okay? <laughs> and maybe it won't be totally free, but stop putting walls up. And, and Canada right. doesn't seem to want to do that. Well, I, I, you know, I think, I think Canada does. Certainly if you look at both the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP-11 deal that was signed, and if you look at CETA, this is the free trade deal yeah. we signed with um, the European Union. In both cases, we, we wiggled on some of these things. We actually put more latitude into those agreements than were in the old NAFTA on many fronts. So I think now the idea was let's, let's reciprocate. And I, I'm feeling like there will be some kind of movement. Now, this wouldn't be good news to your more rural listeners listening to us today saying, oh, Marvin, what do you mean? They're, they're going to give up supply management? No, I don't think they're going to give up supply management, but they're going to create freer trade. They're going to allow more American dairy products into the market than are currently allowed. And yes, that will put competition on our farmers. I suspect at the same time the Canadian government will also announce some subsidies or programs to help farmers bridge to a better world on the other side. So I think, I think we'll give. But the whole idea was, certainly with automobiles, it is so fundamental to our economy that uh, the product that moves back and forth, so on and so forth, if we didn't get that one, it didn't matter. The rest of these don't matter. So now that we've got that one maybe out of the road, I think the tone of the last round is going to be much better. The the news about the auto part of this, the auto file on this, I think is is a victory for Canada. As you just articulated, they bought our math. They just said, so yeah, yeah, we never thought of it that way. And that's that's huge at this stage. But, you know, that that's the next question. Okay, what are you going to give up in return now? <laughs> and and you know that as Lighthizer is sitting at that table right now, representatives from Verizon and Amazon are right behind him saying, hey, hey, hey. Yeah. You know, we want our piece of the pie well, I, here. So I, I, maybe I maybe I should say it even more clearly. You know, I think we are going to give up a little something on supply management. I think we are going to give up a little something on this uh, duty. How much can come across the board without duty? But the two big ones that remain to me are this idea that of how do we resolve disputes? Yeah. And if we don't get that one fixed in an impartial manner, then it doesn't really matter. If if the whole idea is that anytime America has a dispute, they can take it to an American judge and an American court and decide it in America, then it's not really again, it's such a great agreement. And then the other question I've still got is, is really uh, this tiny of five years. We're not going through all of this. We're not doing these heavy negotiations for nearly a year to come back at this again in five years. The last one lasted 23 years. Can we, can we get to something? Maybe it's 10 years, or maybe it's a five-year review rather than a renewal, and, and let's sign up for this. As we've learned, Bill, and I know I'm switching channels slightly here, Mr. Trump has exposed himself in the last week as someone who uh, sort of invents facts to his needs at the time, if they're even facts, invents or, ideas to his needs. That. Yeah, and, and so some of this was all predicated on Donald's view of how evil everything was. I think he's actually learned the trade with Canada is not the bugaboo. I know he says some things differently, but I think he's learned it's not the bugaboo it was. Therefore, I think if we can get some movement on the duration of the deal, 
and the resolution stuff, then I think we can still get a deal. But don't trust me, it's going to be 10 tough days of negotiating. All right, let's talk about the elephant in the room here is the clock is ticking. Uh, the U.S. Mm-hmm. wants a deal, they say by spring, mm-hmm. and they say because of the legalities, uh, you know, if it's not done by spring, we're not even going to do it this year because we want it done for their midterm elections. Mexico has an election coming up even before that, mm-hmm. and there's a chance of a regime change in Mexico. So they want to get a deal and they want to get this thing signed. How much of a, a, a pressure is that, and what and who's who's under the gun now? All three of them? I think everybody's under the gun because remember, we also have big elections this year in Ontario and Quebec and yeah. Canada. So uh, we are very quickly going to be entering a season, middle April, end of April, where everyone's attention is going to switch someplace else. So you have 10 days, and I I like pressure. You know, I think magical things can happen when you put pressure on people. If I tell you, Bill, we have 90 days to negotiate something, the first 88 days go by pretty quick, and your position seems set, my position seems set, but when you see the clock ticking down in that last 48 hours, the pressure goes up. And uh, come on, you see this happen at the university all the time. All the time. The date for that is, uh, you know, it's due uh, April 30th. It's April 28th. It's, look, i got to get going on this thing. Exactly. So, uh, again, and that's not, to, that's not to blame anybody. We've done a lot of great negotiating. The New Deal is going to go from 22 chapters to 33 chapters. We've had 26 negotiating teams. Many of them haven't gotten any publicity at all because they've successfully finished their negotiations. So we're down to the final strokes. If I take you back 20-some-odd years ago to the first signing of NAFTA, that dispute resolution clause was negotiated up to 24 hours before the document was signed. It took 24 hours before the document was signed. In in other words, they had called the press conference and still didn't have an agreement at that time. We could see the exact same thing here. I think that's the biggest stumbling block of all. All right. The ramifications of of no deal, and and that's still a possibility at this stage. It depends on the mood that Trump's in and a number of other things right now. Uh, do we look at the possibility of steel tariffs? Do we look at, uh, at, at the negativity of what's going to happen to the Ontario economy, especially as a manufacturing center? So when you say no deal, I think everyone needs to remember that we still do have a NAFTA deal in place. There's, that's still there. So if we don't have a deal, the current NAFTA just continues on. Now, the question is, how would Mr. Trump react to no deal? He has suggested he has suggested that if he can't get what he wants, then he's going to rip it up. In other words, he's going to cancel it. That's a six-month notice that six months from now NAFTA is finished, as we know it. And then he's also suggested that if he can't get that, he would put tariffs on steel and aluminum, include Canada and Mexico in those tariffs. Now, I don't think that's a hollow threat. I think that's a, a you know, a, a decent threat, a 50-50 threat. But I think he will be very much guided by Mr. Lighthizer. If he says to him, Donald, you know, we've got this, 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 and this. Why don't we sign a deal that's 80%, 90% NAFTA and just agree to come back and sort these out later? I think he's going to listen to him. He, uh, Mr. Trump, even though he seems to be somewhat independent, there are some advisors clearly these days that he's listening to more than others. And Mr. Lighthizer and a fellow by the name of Wilbur Ross, who's the Commerce Secretary, he's listening very strongly to them. The, the whole thing of steel tariffs is Wilbur Ross. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was Ross that whispered that in his ear and said, here's how we can get back at these guys. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, you're right. There are some voices he has but, there. But those, same, those two same voices also said, for the moment, it's probably not a good idea for us to do this if we're talking free trade. So exempt Canada, the United, Canada and Mexico. 
you remember he lost an economic advisor over this. Uh, uh, he's lost other people, actually, over the imposition of tariffs. But the ones he's listening to, so that's really the question. What do they feel we should do? I, again, I'm still going to be hopeful that if we can't get a full 100% deal, we can get a 90% deal and also an agreement that says, and we'll come back to the table in January 1st, 2019, and sort out these last three issues, whatever they are. All right, but get back to this the, the dispute resolution, because, I mean, this has been a contentious issue. Oh, yes. Uh, we've tried to do a skate around it now a little bit, and we've gone to the World Trade Organization for some of our beefs right now because we didn't like what was going on uh, from the American response to this. That only seems to be throwing gasoline onto the fire. How <laughs> How are we going to? I don't expect everybody to start, you know, grabbing each other and singing kumbaya around the table. But I mean, how are we going to lighten this up a little bit and create this idea of partnership? Well, that's you know, that's a good question on a couple of fronts. So, uh, dispute resolution. Why we went to the World Trade Organization was since we were renegotiating NAFTA, and Mr. Trump said he was going to rip it up if I if I filed a complaint under it and then he ripped it up, I'd lose all that time. So why don't I just go to the final authority, which is the World Trade Organization? And at least to so far, Donald Trump has not made any indication that he wants to withdraw the United States from the World Trade Organization. Every country in the world then has that as a vehicle to resolve disputes between nations. Um, I think again we have talked tough for good reasons. We feel, uh, and I think quite rightly so, that uh, we've been hard done by. We were going to be hard done by Bombardier, but America's sharpened up on that one. We've got softwood lumber, which is a problem. We've got a couple others that are a problem. So I don't think we give up on those. But if we can get the kind of deal we want, I think it's also part of the negotiation. Uh, to be more specific, Bill, I'm hoping that the new NAFTA will be much clearer on softwood lumber so we don't have to keep doing this. If we can get a good deal there, maybe we can simply withdraw our case in the World Trade Organization, but that would also mean the United States would cut some of those tariffs and we'd find some middle ground. That's really what I'm hoping we'll see in that final deal. All right. So with that, obviously, we'd have some sense of re resolution to this, and, and I guess that's what we're looking for in these circumstances. But the other other side of this, and we had this uh, with the last government, when Stephen Harper announced that they'd signed the European deal, and there was a hue and cry from the dairy industry then mm -hmm. uh, because there was some some flexibility uh, mm -hmm. when it came to supply management, uh, and the government had to quickly cobble together some sort of a package to try to mm -hmm. pacify them. Do are we looking at that sort of thing as well? In other words, there's going to be a cost at this side of the border somehow. Yeah, well. Let me explain why some people like free trade. It forces your companies, whatever they are in Canada, to compete on a global market. And that means they've got to up their game. If I put trade barriers and say, oh, don't worry, you Canadian companies, I'm going to protect you, you give them a reasons to be inefficient, to not adopt world standards. So we welcome competition often in business because it forces you to improve or, heaven forbid, die those who can figure out how to say uh, uh, current, those who can be efficient, they survive, those who can't don't. So how do we do this? Well, right now, Canadian farms are in a transition. They're moving from family farms to more, I hate to use the word factory farms, but more larger farms, larger mm -hmm. operations. So you need to give them some transition and protection. It may also be that you don't open the doors completely. To, for example, in the free trade deal with Europe, we open the door to cheese. We, this is the thing many Canadians would like to buy true Edom or true Howda or true Camembert from France or from Holland, and right now they could get Canadian versions of this. It doesn't mean the Canadian versions are going to die. It just gives people more choice. I think for us in Canada, it'd be interesting to see what, what dairy products America really wants to bring into Canada. And, and Bill, I'm going to make no fans with what I'm about to say, but if you visit Buffalo, you would discover that they pay about a dollar less for four liters of milk than we pay in Canada yeah. because of the competition. 
you know, I get that I want to protect the farms, but on the other side, I also want to make sure Canadian consumers get a good deal. Can we find that middle ground? And that's the trick now for Christian Freeland to figure out. You know, we've talked about dairy and uh, and, and, and automobiles, etc. cetera. Uh, the wine industry is on the table here, too. I mean, there's a whole series of things right now where the U.S. is saying we want better access to this market. And I know you can buy California wines you know, at the LCBO now and, and I guess even some of these corner stores. But there's a whole industry down there that's simply saying, why not? And uh, I guess my first question to that is, how about we uh, let's let's tear down some of the trade barriers between the provinces before we start working on that? Both of those are true. You know, we, we have interprovincial trade barriers, for instance, in beer and in wine. If you if you make beer in one province and want to take it to another province, that's a problem. So we need to I think we need to quickly sort those out. In terms of the wine, it's not so much that we keep American stuff out, but we give preferential treatment to Canadian wine and say, hey, wait a minute, that's not fair. Again, I think you can find a way to say, okay, you know, we'll, we'll reduce the amount of shelf space perfectly dedicated, or maybe we'll increase the amount of shelf space that American wines can have access to. I think there are ways to solve those. Those are not as intractable as I fear the dispute. But, but Lighthizer did mention it. He did, you know, and, he, and that's his job. His job is to say, we've got these other sticking points, but those on my, on my scale, on my ranking point, I think those are much more easily solved. So you're optimistic. I remain optimistic. That 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 looks like these guys are really going to try to work to something. Yeah. And what I, about what about the timetable though? They they uh, they say spring or no deal. Yeah. I, I, well, I think again. Remember that I think eighty percent of the deal is done. We've got a few sticking points. We've got 10 days. We've got pressure. And we've got three people, I think now, who are quite willing to try to make something happen. The tone, the change in tone in America cannot be underestimated. If they continue to take a hard line, I was less optimistic. Now that they've shown some willingness, at least on some of the issues to wiggle, I still think it's possible. Now, the whole question will be, is it a full-blown NAFTA 2.0 or is it an 85 90% with a few more details to sort out later? I don't know, but I'm sure they're going to sign something by the end of that time. You mentioned, uh, and you told us this months ago, that uh, we were to ignore the bluster from the White House and assume that there was a lot more uh, in, the, in the way of co- uh, congenial activity, I guess, going on behind closed doors in these boardrooms. Yeah, I, I still feel that way. I, I still think you have to talk tough publicly. You've got your own uh, quadrants to play to. Remember, after they sign the deal, Christian Freeland's got to come back to Canadians and sell the deal. Mr. Lighthizer has to sell in the States. The Mexican representative has to sell it. Right now, the reason why they're worried about the Mexican presidential election is there is no love in the United States for Donald Trump. And any Mexican leader who seems to be kowtowing Trump to get a deal is not going to get elected. So they're going to have to sell it and say, we did not concede very much, or what we concede yes, we gave this up, but look at everything we got in return. All three organizations are now going to have to sell this to their citizens. What are the other, I, I know we got all about 30 seconds left here, but I want to go back to the dairy for just a second, uh, because there are two issues here. It's first of all, access to market. The other is standards. Uh, and, and I know that's a contentious and a sticky issue when it comes to dairy products. They say, look at, we do it better than the United States. They're going to have to meet our standards. I assume that's an issue that's on the table. Sure. Standards, labeling, you know, for instance, you want products to come into Canada, you have to have bilingual packaging. The America's says why we're an American company we only speak English down here we say well that's the cost these again are things that we can sort out I think in in the right way um, but the the sticking point for me is will America be willing to cave in on a couple of other things we'll have to give something I think we'll do that are they willing to give a little more in return that's going to be the big question for April all right you got a meeting at 10 o'clock I better let you go thanks okay. for coming in today thanks Bill. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business you're listening to the Bill Kelly show weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML during the last federal election campaign, uh, Justin Trudeau promised that uh, if elected prime minister, he would enact uh, more gun control in Canada and revise the existing laws. Well, that uh, bill 
called Bill C-71 was uh, presented earlier this week by Public Safety Minister Ralph Goodale. And uh, on the surface, if you read the overview, it sounds encouraging uh, because they're talking about enhanced uh, background checks and uh, proposed changes to how vendors document the sale of firearms. But when you look at it and get into the fine details, uh, there's a great deal of concern in many circles that there's not much going on here. And uh, it's causing an awful lot of fr- angst and frustration uh, with a lot of folks, including our next guest, uh, Heidi Rathjen is a gun control activist. Uh, she also is a survivor of the Polytechnique massacre from m- many, many years ago. And uh, a member of the Poly Sousouvian. And she joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about that. Heidi, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. Let's let's talk a little bit about the proposed legislation in Bill C-71. You've uh, had a chance to digest it right now. What are your thoughts? Uh, we're very disappointed. We expected a lot more. The It sounds good. It sounds like the Liberals respected most of their promises. uh, promises, but like you said, if you look at the details, they really just did the minimum in order to sort of respect their promises, and there was so much potential uh, in terms of public safety that they could have brought brought forward within these promises, and they didn't. And in addition, uh, I mean, we Canadians have been just as horrified as Americans uh, with the the recent uh, shootings south of the border. All of those weapons, all of those military-style semi-automatic assault weapons are legal here in Canada. And since the Polytechnic Massacre, we've been calling on a ban on these weapons. And yet with 80%, more than 80% of Canadians supporting a ban on assault weapons, the Liberal Bill doesn't even touch uh, them, and they they will continue to be legal. So um, That's one of the things that jumped out at me, was, was what's not in here. And I thought there would have been some some reference to assault weapons. I mean, in light of what's happened in the last four or five years here in Canada, uh, as, as tragic as those events are in, in, in Florida, in Parkland, Florida, and in Las Vegas, and, and, and other places, sadly, there seems to be one almost every week now in, in the United mm-hmm. States, unfortunately, school shootings. But we saw this happen in New Brunswick, where Maddies were killed. We've seen it happen in other areas. And, and uh, you know, assault weapons are, are the main cause of, of some of these and you'd think that the government would say, look, there's no need for those. But they didn't even talk about it. No, and, and it would be a political win. In fact, gun control is supported by the vast majority of Canadians in every province. And uh, we did a poll, an environics poll on assault weapons, and they showed that support for a ban of assault weapons is exactly the same in rural areas as in uh, urban areas. And even the majority of gun owners support a ban on assault weapons because they, you know, the majority are are uh, legitimate hunting, sporting, uh, uh, you know, uh, enthusiasts, and that's that's fine. There, there's a place for a legitimate use of firearms in Canada, but we don't need weapons that are designed for war in the hands of civilians. And yet, even with all the support, even with all the the obvious risks that we can see when these guns fall into the wrong hands, they didn't budge on them. They didn't even budge on. I mean, the you know, Canada boasts that we also have a ban on large capacity magazines well under the conservatives they you know there was some kind of weird interpretation of the law uh, which created a loophole which now allows um, uh, gun owners to buy uh, uh, clips of you know 30 and 50 legally as long as they're not designed for the gun that they fit into it's it's absolutely ridiculous so right now out there we legally have the same kind of firepower that is used to mow down dozens of kids in a matter of minutes and that that is an aberration and yet they they don't even talk about assault weapons um and and unfortunately the media in Ottawa haven't uh, held 
the government's feet to the fire on this issue. And uh, and that's on top of all the, the measures that they say are in the bill that, are, you know, they, they boast about. But um, when you look at the details, for example, uh, they, they're reinstating the sales records uh, in gun stores that existed since the 1970s without a problem. This measure exists in the in the United States. Uh, police have access to these this data to investigate crimes and make sure laws are being respected. But what did the liberals do? They didn't completely reinstate them. They reinstated them, but then they put a big procedural obstacle for the police to have access to them. They need warrants now, which was never the case for for the 30, 40 years. Um, since the 1970s. So, so in why other words, they they gonna, they'd have to go before a judge and, and show cause as to why they need to see those records. Exactly. So there's no, there, you know, it doesn't seem to be, there doesn't seem to be room for any kind of uh, routine checks to make sure that, you know, inventories are, are uh, guns are all there uh, accounted for, that sales are only being done to uh, gun owner, uh, licensed individuals. The 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 well, access to yeah, this data is only if they find a, a gun on the scene of the crime, and then they have to trace it. But they don't know what store to go to. They might have to go to fifty stores before they can trace. But there's there's another element to that 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 idea of registration, which, as you mentioned, Heidi, on the surface sounds really good. I can go through that step, and they can do the background check. I mean, we'll talk about the check in a second. And I get I license it. Okay, I've picked up a firearm. I can walk out of that store, sell it to you, and I don't have to record that. Uh, exactly, and so all of a sudden, no that 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 train of of where that gun mm-hmm. is gone is already it's broken right there. Yes, uh, the the BC government did a report on illegal guns, and they found that uh, about sixty percent of guns, illegal guns, are that can be traced back to domestic sources, meaning either they're stolen or they're sold illegally. But and because we don't have registration anymore of long guns, which are over ninety percent of guns in Canada, and many assault weapons are are unrestricted, um, they you're you're they it's made easy now to sell guns illegally because you can't hold any you can't trace back the gun to the last legal owner who sold it illegally. And so when they say they want to crack down on illegal guns, they're not doing a very good job of it. Um, this is really a bill that was designed to look like they're fulfilling their election promises, but really they did everything they could to give concessions to the gun lobby within those. And we're very disappointed. There's still good things in there, and we're going to support the bill because it still uh, moves things forward. Um, for example... Uh, they are reinstating the uh, obligation for a seller to verify the validity of a permit of a buyer, which was eliminated by the conservatives. So that's a really good thing. Um, but uh, in terms of the potential for public safety, uh, I mean, it's 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 really they did the minimum in in terms of this bill. You know, it's interesting. If if I want to sell my car to my son, I still have to go and register it. I can't just say, "Here are the keys. Give me mm-hmm. give me five bucks for it." Uh, I've got to go there. There, there has to be a, a, a government record of that transaction for an automobile, but for a firearm, don't have to do that. Exactly. It's, it, it just doesn't make any sense at all. Well, I'm 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 glad you agree. It's been it's really hard to communicate that the bill how weak the bill is because of the um, I mean the government has a real amazing PR machine to sell these measures as you know uh, with all the fanfare of, of cracking down on crimes and guns and so on uh, it, is, it is not the case uh, it, is, it does it doesn't respect the will of Canadians 
nor um, uh, it doesn't take into consideration the actual risks of, of farms because if they if they did the bill would be a lot tougher. It would go a lot further. I, You know, there was a big pushback and, of course, a lot of debate after the Parkland school shooting just a couple of weeks ago in Florida. And and uh, you know, there were even politicians, uh, Marco Rubio, the senator from that state, and a couple of others were saying, you know, don't don't blame guns. That's, you know, mental health issues and all this sort of stuff. And And there was a very poignant comment from one of the teachers at that school that said that's all well and good for politicians to comment on this, but you know what? How many of them have been at the receiving end of that sh- of the, the sound of gunfire? Mm-hmm. Uh, you have. Uh, that changes your perspective considerably. Yeah, our, our agenda is saving lives, whereas the gun lobby's agenda is to protect their interests. And, uh, I mean, the, the experts, uh, science, uh, public health studies, uh, crime prevention studies and the expert like the chiefs of police and the police all agree that we should have tougher gun control. The public agrees we should have tougher gun control, and yet a liberal government that was elected on a platform which promised tougher gun control doesn't have the backbone to stand up to the gun lobby and ban assault weapons. While in the you you know the we are asking for the same thing that the Americans are asking for. Seventy two percent of Americans support a ban on assault weapons, and they're stuck with the NRA that has hijacked their government. And we can ask ourselves, is this the case now here in Canada? Because if we don't get gun control under a liberal government that ran on gun control with the majority of the public in favor after these horrible shootings, I don't know when we're ever going get, to uh, get back what we had after the Polytechnic ma- Massacre uh, uh, after uh, Harper destroyed uh, most or weakened or destroyed most of the measures that we gained then. It's very discouraging. Because we work on news cycles, and I hate to sound overly cynical here, but you've seen this in the work that you've been doing since uh, since you were there at, at Polytechnic. Uh, you know, I mean, 78 people were shot and killed in Las Vegas, and how many others wounded in, you know, in that? And, and three weeks later, it was, it was a non-edit. Nobody's talking about it anymore. And the same thing with Parkland. I mean, it was wonderful to see those students be so proactive and to, and to put a voice to this. But even that story is starting to fade right now because of the power of the gun lobby and the fact that the people that are being asked to make the decisions and draft the legislations are the ones that are cashing checks from those lobbyists to, to, to maintain the status quo. Well, I think that, I mean, the there's a big, huge march this coming weekend on Saturday, so I wouldn't completely say that the wave is over. I think there's a new wave coming and a big one this weekend with marches all over, not just America, but around the world. If you No, we've got some in this now. area too, yeah. Yeah, and we're, we're going to participate in the Montreal one. We're also, uh, Nathalie Provo, who's one of the victims of Marc Lepin at Polytechnic, she's actually going to Washington and we're going to support the students. And we're, we're actually hoping that some of this noise about the, you know, the American outrage uh, against the NRA uh, is is that is uh, uh, comes to comes to Canada a little bit because uh, I mean we don't hear it that much, but the gun lobby has influenced the Liberal go- government in a way that prevents the introduction of uh, effective gun tough and effective gun control. Um, right. And, and it's got to be frustrating for you. I mean, and again, I understand that you're going to support this bill because I guess something is better than nothing. Mm-hmm. But you have done the work on this. You've done the homework on this. And because uh, we want to gauge public sentiment on this. And, and I, I understand that politicians love to get reelected. And, and uh, there's that element of pressure from their lobbyists and those who contribute to their financial situations. But there's also the voice of the public. 
And you're right. We started to hear after the Parkland shooting in Florida that maybe that voice was becoming so loud that politicians were going to start to pay attention to it. Uh, we need to have that same sort of thing happen here. But why is it that we have to wait for a tragedy, Heidi, uh, to bring this discussion and to bring this debate to the front? Well, probably because anything that's related to prevention is not the most exciting uh, news story. Um, and most Canadians support gun control, but they're not, they're not you know, marching for it because it's not, like if you compare it to the, the gun groups, they're organized, they have memberships, they have hunting organizations, collectors organizations, gun rights organizations, blogs. I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, incredible how many networks uh, are, are mobilizing against gun control. And they're, they knock on their MPs' doors, they call them, they write letters, and that's usually all the MPs hear, the only people MPs hear from. It's just the nature of the debate, and it it's unfortunate because uh, it it um, prevents the uh, the implementation of measures that most Canadians support, and that uh, and and not, they're not only popular but they're effective. Gun control has been shown to work around the world. Tougher gun laws reduce the chances of guns falling into the wrong hands and save lives and. Um, we we need uh, with this bill. We're hoping that Canadians will uh, who support gun control will contact their MPs, will speak out, will write a letter to the editor and saying this is this is not enough. It needs to t- be toughened up, and uh, we need to call for a ban on assault weapons, just like the Americans are doing. Part of the problem here is that every time this discussion comes up on either side of the border, there's a polarization that occurs, and and and. You know, the voices on either side, you like to think that there's a voice of reason there and that that's going to dominate the conversation. But invariably, there are those who simply say, look, it, they're going to take your guns away. If you let them do this, this is the thin edge of the wedge. And there's a there's a fear factor that comes in for people that are gun owners. And, and that seems to obviously to motivate them uh, and, and get them on the other side of the debate. And politicians listen to that voice, too. Exactly. And, you know, uh, the talk of banning guns only comes from the side of the gun lobby. Our group, and, you know, I can, I, I can say that we're one of the most, let's say, vocal or extreme groups. We're not calling for a ban on weapons. We never have. Uh, we just want uh, good controls on guns that are out there, and only we want to ban guns that are designed to, to kill people uh, for mil- in military situations. So we have an actu- we actually have a very moderate position, but the gun lobby keeps um, they're the ones that are fanning the flames uh, about a potential you know eventual confiscation of gun of all guns. That was a whole ar- one of the main arguments about uh, against the registration of all guns. Um, but it's just not true. We're actually pretty moderate in what we're asking for. But uh, the gun lobby, they I mean they. They, they're not quite honest. <laughs> well, there's and, a okay. Let's 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 uh, candy coat it just a little bit. They misrepresent the truth, mm-hmm. and and it, we saw Donald Trump do that during the presidential election. You know, when he was suggesting that Hillary was going to take your guns away, uh, that's the Second Amendment in the states, of course, of their constitution. And mm-hmm. and and I was surprised that 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 sentiment from Trump would actually resonate with people because they don't understand that to to change any amendment in their constitution take 60% of the Congress, 60% of the Senate, and 60% of all the state legislatures. It's never going to happen. The, the president cannot sign a presidential order to ban the Second Amendment. It doesn't happen. It was, But people just said they, that's what they wanted to hear, so they believed it. Yeah, And, and, it, and we're hearing that same sort of thing up here. 
Yeah, it's like any time any government talks or proposes to introduce any, whatever small improvement there is on gun control, usually the gun lobby will scream first step towards confiscation, you know, get involved or they're going to come get your gun. It doesn't matter what the measure is. And this is what's happening uh, in the States and this is what's in part happening here too. And uh, we just can't believe that. We, you know, you have to focus on what measures uh, we're asking for and, uh, and and look at the common sense, uh, you know, the, the, the impact it has on preventing crime, preventing guns from falling into the wrong hands. You mentioned the marches, which I hope is going to revive this, this conversation on both sides of the border. Uh, and I don't know if it's if it's too late for Bill C-71. I mean, this is a majority government. I'm sure this thing is going to pass. But that doesn't preclude them from bringing either amendments to it or to, to enhance it or something else. Uh, because assault weapons are, are need to be part of this discussion. And, and I, at some point, the government has to get that message. Well, uh, we're, we're certainly going to keep uh, calling for a ban on assault weapons. And we're going to call for improvements on the bill. And uh, we need we need uh, Canadians to speak out and support us. You know, we're there. There, we're our group is a group of victims. We're all volunteers. Um, you know, some of the families have have been mourning uh, their loved ones for years, and yet they're still going trekking to Ottawa to meet members of Parliament to expose their wounds, their their pain to the world, to in order to. Um, to lobby for for measures that will prevent other people from suffering like they did, uh, it's really hard. We don't, you know, we don't, we don't even have an o- we don't have an office, or uh, you know, there's no we're not we're just a bunch of volunteers uh, giving our own time, and it's um, it's not easy. Uh, this is not what the gun lobby has paid lobbyists. They have they have lawyers. They have you know we're up against. Uh, a huge, um, it, the, it, it's very imbalanced in terms of resources, pro, uh, pro-gun pro control and those that are against gun control, and that's why it's important for the public to speak out. Well, and, and for you to continue the great work that you're doing, too. Heidi, congratulations on what we've attained, attained so far, and hopefully this will be uh, just another step along the road to, to where we should be on this. Thanks so much for this today. Well, thank you very much for having me. Take care. Heidi Rathjen, gun control activist. So she is a survivor of the Polytechnic Massacre, and I just, without, you know, <laughs> I get this, but I mean, this this debate for many people is an abstract discussion, because you've never fired a gun, probably never had a gun shot at you, but if you're running through the halls of the school, and somebody's trying to kill you, it might change your perspective on assault weapons, and maybe the government action, or inaction as it would be, on those things. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon, on AM 900 CHML.